Hi, everyone. Back at you with another episode of ESEC Lending Insights, where we keep it unscripted, real, and interesting. Unscripted, Peter? I would say that's definitely true, but interesting. Why don't we let our listeners decide on that one? What we are here to do, folks, is share with you our thoughts and perspectives on the securities lending industry, whether that be about demand trends or just what's going on in the industry. And now over to our episode. Let's go. Welcome back to another episode of ESEC Lending Insights. I feel like it's been a hot minute since we've last recorded one of these. It's been a little busy the past few months, but all good busy. And with me today, I have one of my fearless cohorts. Are you a fearless cohort? I could be anything. I've been called a lot ruder than a cohort or a colleague in the past. (laughs) All right. Well, one of my partners in crime. How about that, Ed? That works. Partner in crime. Okay. My partner in crime from across the Atlantic, Mr. Ed Oliver, is with me here on the podcast today in sort of a co-host slash you can engage and you can ask questions. I love Um, that. And then we also have with us today some external guests, some friends that are returning. I think this is the third podcast that we've done with the friends from PRM in North America, Mr. Bob Z. Krauss, who's the COO and head of Americas for PRM, as well as Mr. Tommy V, Tommy Venziano, who is the head of product for North America. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks for having us back. Good to see you and Ed. Yeah. It means so far, no one has voted you off of the podcast. So I see this as a positive. No one's voted us off the island yet. That's good. Right, right. There's still time. There's still time. All right. Well, we are here on a Friday. It is December 1st that we are recording this for everyone referencing when we're speaking versus when it's out. But it is a cold one. I mean, I feel like November was colder than normal, at least over here on this side of the pond. And I will note that it was cold enough that Zeke had, although you just took it off, which is why I'm going to remark on it, but had a very nice neck scarf on while sitting in your office there all alone. Is that because there's just less hot air or not yet enough hot air? We got to increase the heat on this podcast. What's going on? Less hot air in the room, but I'm sure we're going to get the heat on the podcast. So yes, no, we were, the HVAC system was acting up on our side and was a little frigid, but it's getting warmer by the minute. All right, good. Well, we got to get you warmed up. So today we want to specifically talk about 10C1, and this is the SEC ruling that came out and was finalized in mid-October for greater transparency related to securities lending in the U.S. market. It will have pretty wide-ranging impact. It obviously captures, I think, nearly all, if not all, securities lending activity across all U.S.-based securities. And the time horizon is, while it's a few years out in terms of true implementation and go-live, it will be here before we know it. The fact that we're already in the month of December and The year 2023 is a little shocking to me today. And I'm sure as we fast forward, we'll be just as equally shocked at how much time flies between now and go live for 10C1. So we wanted to give our listeners, especially our beneficial owner friends that might have awareness, but maybe not as deep of a familiarity as other market participants, just a primer, sort of a little cheat sheet. This is the Cliff Notes version, folks. So welcome, welcome. And maybe Ed, you can kick us off by doing just that. And then we'll get into it more with our friends from PRM and how the market's going to react and respond to prepare for 10C1. Yeah, sure. No, thank you, Brooke. When I think about this sort of from a client perspective, and I put the framework together in the context of SFTR, which was a regulatory reporting regime that we have been reporting on behalf of our European clients on for a number of years, with the assistance actually of our friends from Pyram. So uh, good to have them on as well today. But I think it's worth noting that that was a very big regulatory reporting initiative. 
there's 150 odd fields that get reported every day for securities finance transactions that occur between uh, EU and UK based entities. So that's a great framework to start this discussion, because when we think about 10C1, we are now talking about something that will require 13 fields. So right away, there is a big difference between the two reporting regimes there. And also, SFTR is a two-sided reporting regime. So we have a matching that happens between two European or UK entities, whereas 10C1 will be one-sided. So I just want to put a framework that this is actually a simpler exercise than what we went through a few years ago with SFTR. And hopefully I'm not doing a disservice to the vendors who will be listening to this call and participating in this call by saying, I think it is a slightly lower lift effort, but we'll talk through some of the intricacies in a bit. But I think the key point is there's less fields to be reported. It is going to be probably a January 26 initial reporting requirement. That still needs to be confirmed exactly, but that's where we're looking for that. As I say, there's 13 fields that will be happening. And I think the expectation is that we as a lending agent will be looking to support this on behalf of our clients in the same way we do with SFTR. But I think there is also, and we should talk about this with you guys from Pyram, I think there's still a little open-ended about the exact scope of client that might have to report. So I think the big question I would say at this point in time is when do you think we'll absolutely know that? Are we looking at some point in the next few months or when will that come out? I would hope, Ed, that we would probably have some type of further information on the jurisdictional scope prior to May of next year when FINRA is going to come out with their first initial proposed set of specs for reporting. I think there is a little bit of a gray area in regards to EMEA versus EMEA or EMEA versus US and where some of the securities might fall into scope when you're looking at like the dual listed types, you know, Canadian cross-border type transactions. So there is a gray area there. There's some opinions floating around, but I think we should hopefully see some more information on that as there are conversations going on with their risk management association and the likes of other individuals within the industry with FINRA and the SEC. So hopefully prior to May, which is when we should see that first proposal of rules submissions from FINRA. I have a question just to clarify a couple of things. So mm-hmm. obviously any U.S. domiciled market participants that are lenders, that are lending U.S.-based securities, there's no question that that falls within scope. You guys are just differentiating that a non-U.S.-based lending institution that may be lending U.S. securities, there's a question mark as to whether that reporting would be required for that that's, entity. That's right. Yeah. Okay. But one difference that maybe it ultimately comes down a little bit to optics too, is in SFTR, the underlying lender was the one that had the true set of responsibility to report and that they then decided mm-hmm. in most instances to outsource that to or designate their agent if they were using an agent model or perhaps other market participants to report on their behalf. And my understanding, at least with 10C1, is that the responsibility of reporting falls to a covered person. And you sort of referenced this a moment ago, but agents are considered the covered person. So in a traditional agent lending model, where either it's a traditional bank or someone like ourselves acting as a third-party agent lending on behalf of an underlying benefit owner, we as that agent have responsibility under the regs to do the reporting, correct? Correct. Yeah, that, that's correct, book. 
So underneath the way the rules are set up from a FINRA reporting scenario, although if you pick a third-party vendor part of that solution where they don't need to necessarily be a registered broker-dealer or anything like that, there is a liability shift question. And it's kind of clear within the rules, agent lenders would have a liability upon from their beneficial owners to submit those transactions to FINRA. If the agent lenders then use a vendor solution, the liability would still remain with the agent lender. It doesn't shift if they're using a third-party solution, but it is going to be the agent lender who has that liability. Okay. So I guess what I'm just trying to highlight is one compare contrast point is under SFTR, underlying beneficial owner clients felt and, and did indeed have greater responsibility to truly engage that the SFTR solution was being implemented as mm-hmm. needed. Whereas this underlying beneficial owners using an agent lender model can probably rely more heavily on knowing that it's the agent's liability and responsibility to do this work on their behalf. Yeah, that's right. So the covered person test, it's the agent lender in your model, how you act on behalf of your clients. It's the prime broker, the borrower who is lending securities, right? So the covered person takes into account the lender of the security, the person who's putting the, the loan out to the market. And to what Tommy V just said, you know, using a third party, which many would probably adopt, and especially those that are very familiar with SFTR and the sophistication of the reporting tools and you know, stuff that we bring to the market or our partnership with S&P Global. There's a level of consistency and globalization that I think people feel comfortable with that mechanism to report using a third-party solution to provide that. Okay. And what about in the case of beneficial owners, especially some large ones out there in the market, either in the US or globally? And I guess it goes back to that question we talked about a bit ago, whether those global institutions still fall under this ruling or not. But let's say they do. And in the case of a beneficial owner lending directly, they would then themselves be the covered person. So if they are not using an agent and they are a self-lender in the market, they're still going to need to comply to 10C1. Definitely if they're US-based and if they're non-US-based, that question maybe is still somewhat gray. And that's what you're talking about. Clarity could be had by next spring or so. Did I summarize that correctly? Yeah, that's accurate. And that's what we're waiting on for around May timeframe to get that clarity. The jurisdictional reach is probably the biggest one. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where people are mm-hmm. looking to gather some more intel and awaiting what the SEC is coming back with. But I'll say, you know, Ed started off and gave a nice overview on what this rule is. I like to equate it to the young sibling to SFTR because of the 155 fields versus the baker's dozen or 12 fields that are required for the US. But the market was able to get some concessions from the SEC from the original proposal and very favorable ones in terms of end-of-day reporting versus every 15 minutes, limiting the inventory and availability that was being asked to be shown, and that's been repealed. So I think for the most part, the single side versus dual side of the intraday reconciliation aspect of it versus not, I think there are a lot of benefits that came out of this favorably for the securities borrowing lending market, but some of them that still need that clarity go back to that jurisdictional reach, because those are some of the unknowns that I think people want more familiarity or more clarity on before everyone starts jumping into this. And I do believe too, and Tom and I participated in a webinar on the 15th of November, the day after your client symposium, which was fantastic, by the way. And thanks again for allowing Purim to participate. It was a great event. Yeah, definitely. That November 15th webinar that we did with S&P Global, Capitec, and Deborah Voice in Plimpton was attended by well over 300 people. And one of the overriding things was, well, given the timeline in T plus one, we're going to start paying attention to this probably around that May or June, which coincides to what Tom said earlier, waiting for the rule set and kind of the scope to come into the market. 
Can I just pick up on the timing question? Because obviously you made the right point. The every 15 minutes was going to be a problem. I think end of day is obviously much easier. That's still a little bit more aggressive than SFTR, where we've got a further 24 hours before we have to submit the reports. What's your thoughts on that? Because when I think about it, the timing of, you know, when we're sending information over to the vendors to on report, is that end of day timing midnight? Eastern time, what is the actual time that we should all be thinking about at this stage, or is it not actually detailed out yet? I would probably say that that is still one of the other gray area questions that is out there, Ed, because when reading through the rule, one of the requirements is time of execution of the contract. So then the gray area question comes out as to when is it a contract, right? So from a U.S. perspective, especially DTC, which is here because there's no scope of repo or anything within 10C1, end of day transactions that don't settle get canceled out. They don't call carry on as a fail that's going to settle the next day, and then you just start over again. So is that something where we're going to be reporting, end of day reporting, but multiple iterations of that? Or do we just take a snapshot at the end of day after market close is still a little bit of a gray area, I think, out there, which is something we're looking for an answer on. Just to say, if I execute at 830, but that transaction fails for whatever reason that it might fail, am I still reporting on that? as it was executed, but then it dropped. And that's the life cycle event we have to report. Secondly, that's still something that we're all researching and trying to find an answer for. So let's back up a second, because again, let's say that it's a beneficial owner listening to this and maybe doesn't care so much about those details as much as we all do. But can we talk about, we know it's a smaller data set ultimately, it's still many fields, but a smaller, maybe more reasonable data set than what the industry has faced in the past. Can we talk about what sort of types of information are included in that? And then ultimately too, what will then be published following the registered FINRA's receipt as a registered agent of that data, what's then going to happen with it and how that's going to be presented back to the market and available to the market to the extent we have visibility to that at this point. Maybe start first with what type of data is included in that. I mean, if a lender thinks of a normal detailed on loan report, is it most of those fields? Does it include things related to revenue and fees and specific borrowing counterparts and things like that? Can you go into kind of what's in scope? Sure. So the legal name of the issuer of the security is the first one, ticker and other types of security identifiers. Like I said, the time and date of the covered securities loan. So there's like a date and time of that transaction. Name of any type of execution platform, if there is an execution platform being used, rates, fees, rebates, and loan, the type of collateral provided, termination date of the securities loan, the borrower type. And then there's a few additional ones that will be required, but not necessarily published, which is the legal names of the parties to the transaction, whether or not from a broker-dealer perspective, that loan was from their inventory to a client or not. And the last one, you know, looking at fully paid programs, so to speak, whether or not that loan is to cover a reg show short or potential buy-in on the 204. Those are like the main fields that are required. There will be a holding period on some of the economics of it, Brooke. So when those economics are reported, FINRA is not necessarily reporting those immediately. They're holding on to them for a certain period of time, not to skew the market, not to put some false situations out there. So there's a specific holding period that FINRA is going to come out with where before they're actually putting that information out. Okay. And my basic understanding is that, so some information will be reported pretty efficiently, or I don't know if it's even next day, but... Mm-hmm. but timely. Some information will be reported timely. Some then, as you just said, will be held back 
for a period of time. And I don't know if that's a week or more, but you know, but I believe some... it's 20 days at the moment. Okay. All right. So it's more than a few weeks and what sort of aggregation. So I think you just noted that the legal entities of those involved in the transaction, probably both sides of the trade will be included in the data, but yet you made reference to it probably being anonymized. Do we have yet any sense of what the broad market would be able to see and what they might be able to glean from it? Is there any sort of feel of that yet? I think we still need to see what the reporting specs are going to look like from FINRA and what those rule submissions are going to be before we do that. So I think that's something that is TBD at this point in time, just so we get some yes. understanding from what is coming from FINRA. Yeah, that's right. Because for those 12 fields that are in question that will be reported, which ones does FINRA, the SEC, feel like are relevant? Because remember, this was all born from kind of the meme stock and what was driving that and that institutions had access to information that a retail market participant would not. So I think there's an aspect of what is needed for the market to be able to look at, go on a FINRA website and have this available to them. What other stuff is going to be held close maybe to monitor systemic risk in the marketplace as a buildup to that, you know, on specific issues, specific securities, specific transaction types, et cetera. So I think Tom is right in reflecting on that. I think there's going to be some level of information that's going to be presented, but we just don't know at this point exactly what that is. I think that's an interesting contrast with SFTR as well, which was very much a regulatory driven thing. So give information to the regulators and there hasn't mm-hmm. been much in the way of anything that gets published in detail upon the data that's shared. Whereas what I think is interesting is there is going to be some transparency yes. that is going to be reaching the outside world on securities lending transactions under 10C1, which I guess I think is positive. I think until we know the absolute detail, it's difficult to absolutely say that, but it feels to me like that is a positive step forward. I agree, Ed, right? And look, you spent a lot of time on the data side of the business, right? So you appreciate what that did to transform and change the market from a practitioner standpoint in a very opaque market and how that information was proven to be very valuable in terms of getting some insights. But even things like the type of collateral that's being used to secure the covered securities loan transaction will be disseminated. So most would think, well, it's U.S. securities in scope, so it must be U.S. dollar. But no, there's a growing non-cash market. So again, capturing that aspect of it as well and having that potentially presented to a wider part of the U.S. market or global markets is, is quite interesting. So I agree where SFTR was driven by the focus on kind of the regulatory side. This is focused on capital markets or free access to information that otherwise wasn't always available to the wider universe. Do we know yet how much granularity there will be on the collateral types? And is that just sort of cash, non-cash as far as we understand? Or do we think that it's going to detail it out further in the case of non-cash as an example? Yeah, I mean, right now, out of the 12 fields, it's very kind of blunt and just saying the type of collateral used to secure the covered loan has to be disclosed. So in the world, as we say, non-cash, well, anything other than U.S. dollar you have to show what is securing that loan. So it could be bonds, other equities, notes, something, but it has to be presented that way. Or is the flag a simple cash versus non-cash? I don't know. I thought it was going to be the underlying collateral that had to be potentially disclosed. Tom, is that accurate? Is that different than what we know? They're definitely saying that they want to see what the collateral proposed to cover the loan and then obviously the marginal as well. So, you know, what is the percentage of collateral versus the actual value? So they're looking for what the haircut lockup is going to be on top of the collateral type, but they haven't necessarily gone into the specifics of saying, is this going to be a U.S. Treasury, this type of bond, that type of bond? Is it equity for equity? Obviously, 15C3 doesn't really allow for equity for equity. So 
you know, there probably is a minimal scope to what collateral is going to be done, but they haven't asked for the specific collateral. They do say the issuer of securities on the loan side and the legal name. They don't say that necessarily when speaking to the collateral piece. So it could it be, as he said, as simple as cash, non-cash, uh, something else, probably TBD once the FINRA rules come out. I think the other thing, just what I thought was interesting too, again, it gets back to maybe folks just think the market is very vanilla in terms of cash versus non-cash. But the other thing is they want to disclose the termination date of the covered loan as well, which one would think, well, isn't it always just deemed to be an overnight market? So there's an element, well, if securities are put out for term, that will be disclosed where the majority of folks would just assume it's a rolling open contract that could be closed at any point. So having those things in there, it's like, we see why they pick those 12 versus the 155 or the 150 plus that SFTR required. So while it's small, in scale, it's such a large market and so much volume that will be gleaned from this disclosure. I just find it interesting, like what fields they pick versus which ones they did not. Like, how come they didn't pick if it's 12 and there's 150? What are the other 130 fields that SFTR has or whatever the number is that weren't relevant for SEC to ask for? But that's just my own curiosity and why they pick certain things versus others. You made reference to the fact that U.S. broker-dealers can't pledge you know, equity collateral. But just to be clear, U.S. securities could be out on loan to non-U.S. counterparts, and that's also in scope here. So to the extent yes. there are yes. loans of U.S. securities out to counterparts domiciled in, in jurisdictions outside of the U.S., that is in scope. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that collateral type could be equity collateral as an example. But yeah, it's more going yep. back to, I was highlighting the jurisdictional clarification from the beginning of our conversation. Okay. And exactly. remember, in that rule, that's a broker-dealer rule, rule 15C3-3. That's a broker-dealer rule, but that doesn't mean that a bank can't pledge something other than cash or treasuries as collateral. So yeah, it's all encompassed. Brook, in terms of okay. the jurisdictional reach when it's offshore, as we say, out of the U.S. into EMEA, for example, or APAC. But it's also, if it's a bank non-broker dealer who's transacting in a loan, then what that collateral is underlying, it will be captured as well. I'm sort of asking you to take out your crystal ball on this so you can decide to punt if you would prefer. But do you all have any view on once this data set is captured, what that might mean from sort of a commercial standpoint for the market in terms of data transparency on the U.S. activity versus what the market is already capturing through different data vendors that publish data for performance measurement and benchmarking and such. Like, Do you think that by nature of this being a regulation that it will be more thorough than that of other industry participants might be able to achieve today? And do you think there's actually sort of a shift in dynamics on how the market digests and then uses securities lending data for US-based securities after all of this? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to delve into the crystal ball, but I would think because it is a requirement that's regulatory driven by the SEC and reported to FINRA, the ability to manipulate is the wrong word. This will capture everything versus if it's another data set, maybe things are not always presented fully or to the extent it's the whole world presented versus this is required to be everything, if you know what I mean. I don't know if it changes anything on the commercial side, but it's a requirement that is this an enriched data set that's capturing everything where if it's going through a third-party provider of data out there when maybe everything's not captured because you don't have the full scope of the market. I don't think anyone has the full scope, but in this case, you would think the full scope of the market would be captured here because it's a requirement. To the extent, again, gets back to if it's jurisdictional, are we getting every U.S. equity on loan everywhere in the world, or is it going to be specific to U.S. to U.S., as we alluded to earlier? So commercial, I would say, in my view, is commercial. Don't know if it changes much in how people are using current data in their analysis and in their trading of the book and risk management. But does it give an enriched, complete picture that maybe isn't captured by the existing data providers today? 
it'd be my answer, my thought. Yeah. And I guess the one thing that you didn't know, Tommy, when you were walking through the data fields is this doesn't capture the lendable universe, right? Because it's only no. reporting anything that is true loan activity. So you're not going to get a real picture into what is available out there and then therefore what people are actually allowing to go out, correct? That's correct. Yeah, That's they, correct. they did back out that portion of what was the original proposal to look at what was lendable and inventory things. So that has been sort of depleted from the actual final rule. I'm not sure about the commercial aspect of it, but I think being this becomes a regulatory scenario where you're going into FINRA, it probably disseminates the data a little bit further and deeper into the beneficial owner world than where the true traditional data sets that are out there now from an agent lending perspective with other vendors and stuff. It's from the agent lender and the broker dealer side where they see a lot of that data and then they send that down as they need to from a beneficial owner requirement from a reporting situation. And this is going to be something that might just be more readily available to the beneficial owner community. Okay, good. What else do you think is important or is there anything else outside of just the wait and see on some of the clarification to allow people to truly do the right build and clarify whether it be the things related to timing and sort of how files are being sent through and who all is truly captured in this? Is there anything else out there that is still gray and sort of an unknown at this point? I think those are the main items from a gray scenario situation there. I think the one thing to be just clear about from looking at it from a beneficial owner standpoint or anything, the reality of it is there's going to be a lot of overlap between SFTR data and 10C1 data. There's maybe only two or three of these fields that aren't currently captured in SFTR. So from a beneficial owner standpoint, from someone who is reporting from an SFTR standpoint to look at how you're doing that today and potentially understand where you can leverage that solution and be able to, you know, quicker to market, easier lift. I think, as Ed alluded to, right, this is a little bit less challenging of an exercise for sure from a 10C1 perspective. If you've already got a solution in place, you know, here and S&P, Capitec, who put the solution together, there's ways to leverage what's already out there. So it's not going to be the big lift. Don't get too complacent with the timeline of 2026, though, because you should be looking at this. And it's a lot easier of a look because there are solutions already out there that have a lot of this data and there should be ways to leverage it. Yeah, I wonder if I could just jump in. I wonder, and then Tom, that's exactly because right, we talk about that internally, like don't sleep on it, don't get complacent, it'll creep up on you. But is there a false sense of security that because firms have invested so much time over the last couple of years in SFTR and the schema and the ongoing changes, do they feel like, well, it's a rinse repeat, you know, because it's smaller, well, everything must be captured in there. And Tom brings out a good point. It's smaller, but there are a couple of fields that are unique to this proposal. And I think there's a comfort though of folks saying, well, because we already have a solution that we've adopted in the market, well, now that could be global. So it makes us feel better on it, but that doesn't mean they don't have to do any work. So there is an element of paying attention to this because that timeline does sneak up pretty fast. And this is, you know, for the U.S., it's going to be the first time, just like what it was at me in the U.K. for SFDR, right? It doesn't flip a switch on Jan 1, whatever the date is, 2026, and this happens, or the end of 2025. So I think that's important. We're advising at least clients and people we speak through forums like this are the forms of communication that, you know, start thinking about it, leverage what you have, or think about what you may need, because we're engaged and want to help the market and solve for this like we did on the SFDR side. Yeah, I think the devil's in the detail, and it's only when we see that 
that we're actually really going to understand the true implications of what's ahead of us. And I think once we see that, whether it's the jurisdictional clarification, where it's the clarification of what actually we are going to have to report, the very specifics of that, the question you raised about collateral, great question. There's a huge range of things we could potentially provide there. So I think it's that. So I think when we perhaps get back together, Brooke, in a few months' time, once that information is available to us, It'll be interesting to say, okay, we'll be able to give a bit more clarity on this is where the true differences lie. And this is perhaps elements of things that might be a bit more challenging, or actually we might say, actually, this looks pretty good. Some more to come, I think, on this. So we'll be regathering in June of next year, June of 2024. Zeke probably won't have a neck scarf on at that point, but hopefully not. But hopefully it also won't be too hot. So we'll regroup then, everyone. And I hope by that time, for those that listened to the last podcast ahead of the RMA, that Brooke may have a oh, I, a, I do a, have a nickname. A nickname. She may oh, have. Oh, she see, you I do. Haven't shared, yeah, yeah, yeah. So oh, Jim okay. Maroney has given me a nickname since all of this has happened, and I guess he just hasn't spread it and shared it widely. Yes, but you can ask Jim for my nickname. It's actually incredibly fitting. Okay, and so how about we do it the next time we see each other? I think we'll be up in Boston, Tom, in a, in two, a few weeks' time. Two weeks' yeah. time, so we can, we, can we'll be up we can test it out in person to see the staying power. I'm looking forward to Ed. This actually, is a actually, this is a and I'm going to preview staying power goes well with the nickname also. So there's good connectivity. It has staying power. It's like All a right, riddle. So, it's like so a riddle. Curiosity, it's a total the curiosity riddle. Is, the curiosity has peaked for sure. Yeah. <laughs> this this is coming to a podcast soon is my sense. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yes, exactly. exactly. Although I've, a, also had, I've also had many very highly respected securities lending industry colleagues tell me that they actually think that maybe it's a good thing that I don't have a stock loan nickname. So <laughs> I don't know. So I maybe I don't want uh, to publish it. I would agree on that. But listen, <laughs> we look forward to it. As always, we do appreciate the time. I know these topics, they may not always be the most exciting and the people should be aware about them because it does impact the overall market. And with the regulatory landscape in the U.S. in particular, pretty robust. I mean, if you look at the mandatory clearing of treasuries, which repo will be captured, the market's waiting on those signals. You have 13F2 filings to increase short sale reporting. You have 10C1, obviously you have T plus one, the proxy voting. These are all things that are kind of embedded in the value chain, the ecosystem of securities financing transaction. And it's not just US, right? Many of these things will become global, like T plus one will accelerate in regions pretty quickly, I think, once the North American stuff goes through. So I think these are great topics. We appreciate you always having us on. We're here to help support the market, add value to our clients and listen. But at the same time, it's always great to see you all and have this conversation. Good. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. It's always good having you guys back. And Ed, thank you as well for jumping in that co-pilot chair with me today. And, I always uh, get the fun subjects. So thank you for that. <laughs> it is true though. You get the topics that when I mention the podcast topic to someone like Basler, he's like, yeah, I think I'm going to pass on this one. <laughs> But then inevitably later, he then complains that he hasn't been on a podcast for a long time and thinks that I'm excluding him. So, you know, it's a real thing. Well, it's great. We'll listen to all the folks listening. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and hope everyone has an enjoyable December into the new year. Definitely. And we'll be back with you soon. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, Tommy, Zeke, Ed. We'll talk to you soon. Always Thanks. a pleasure. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope we left you with something interesting and productive to utilize in your daily securities lending activities. And friends, don't forget to subscribe to ESEC Lending Insights wherever you get your podcasts. And now for our disclaimer. 
This material is for your private information and does not constitute legal tax or investment advice. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based upon such information. Thank you for listening.